0: Man, good morning, family. Good morning. I encourage you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where we'll find our text for this morning. Um, and uh, if you do not have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. And uh, that's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one. And now you do. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Predominantly through the history of this young church, we have preached through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, word by word. And for the ongoing uh, future of this church, that will continue to be the predominant way in which uh, we journey through the preaching and the teaching of the Word. But from time to time... Uh, "We will uh, perhaps hit pause on a particular series or uh, take a break or in between different series. We may do some standalone sermons or one-off sermons, however you want to call them. Just they're by themselves. They don't belong to a series. They just are the word of the Lord for that day. Uh, or we may take time to do some shorter, smaller topical series from time to time depending on, Uh, what's going on in the life of the body and the church at that time. And so if you think back, you'll remember that uh, a couple of years ago, we did uh, a series right about this time of the year on the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, Another time we took a break during one of our series, and we did a short series on the doctrine of the church. And so from time to time, we may take a break to deal with a certain subject or, or to just have... A one off sermon. And this morning, uh, this is what that is just a standalone one off sermon. And we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, And just to be frank and honest about why in the world are we in 2 Corinthians chapter 7? Well, in the life of the body over the last uh, several weeks, uh, through pastoral care and counseling and uh, times of discipline, This is a passage that members of our body, together with those in authority over them, have have visited several times over the last several weeks. And as I began to pray about what we should do as we have finished our Summer in the Psalms series and we're waiting to journey into a new series together, I was really um, challenged spiritually to, to go here that if there's that many of our body that have needed to come here already, perhaps we should go here together. And so we're going to journey through just a small part of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to talk about uh, true repentance. True repentance, uh, or you could also say godly grief, or true repentance and godly grief. And so we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13 together. Uh, we're going to read that together out loud. Uh, at the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you then to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's look here together at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Let's begin. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So though I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we have just this small passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And our emphasis or the impetus of the sermon this morning is really going to be drawn from verse 10. Look there again at verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's read that one more time. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we see just a very simple, straightforward principle that's laid forward here in verse 10. Godly grief leads to repentance, which leads to, what does he say? Life, salvation, without regret. In other words, life. And here, salvation is a salvation that Paul is referring to and we need to ask the question, who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the Corinthians, right? Thereby we have the name 2 Corinthians. That also lets us know that there was another time that he spoke to them. Here's the second book that we have, this letter that he wrote to them. So he's, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which means what? By and large, as he is writing this letter, who he has in mind are believers who are in Corinth. Which means hes we can say very simply, he's writing to believers. But he says that he's talking to them about a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So what kind of salvation is the salvation that Paul's talking about here? we through our time together of the last several years, we know that when the New Testament talks about salvation, it often comes in three different forms. We refer to it as past, present, and future, or as justification, sanctification, and glorification. So if Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers about a salvation, and we know that they are believers, which means they are already justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ, What kind of salvation is he referring to? Sanctification. He's talking about this ongoing work of salvation that God is bringing to pass in the lives of the believer. Well, I thought we were saved. You were. You were justified. There is a salvation that is of justification. That means when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins, the penalty for them, were forgiven past, present, and future. Done. Remember how Paul phrases it in 1 Corinthians 15, this beautiful section of Scripture that describes to us the gospel. And he says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He says what? Which you received. They had already received it. What's Paul referring to there? He's talking about this work of justification that is brought by grace through faith in Christ alone. He says you received it. You were saved. Past tense. You received it. He says, then he says, and in which you stand. So there is also a way in which that salvation was ongoingly being worked out in those believers' lives. And we refer to that as the work of sanctification, where justification is where the penalty of sin has been removed. Now through the work of sanctification, where we are daily, continually being saved by Christ... The power of sin is beginning to be removed from our life. Listen to what I said. The power of sin is beginning to be removed from our life, which means what? As we continue in this body of flesh, we will continue to battle the ongoing power of sin in the flesh. And the work of sanctification is the work by the Spirit where God continually, day by day, saves us by grace through faith in Christ as the Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ. Well, how is that work done? Well, we could go to a very familiar passage of Scripture like Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Now, can we do just a little bit of elementary work here? Just just by using a cursory knowledge of the Word of God is Paul talking about you going into a corner by yourself or into a closet and lighting some candles and crossing your legs and sitting down and saying, um, I'm renewing my mind, I'm renewing my mind, I'm renewing my mind. Is he talking about some kind of transcendental work whereby you can mystically tap in to some kind of power where you automatically are transformed because something in your mind changed because you decided to do that? No, what, how is our mind renewed according to Scripture? We could jump to Ephesians chapter 5 and draw a conclusion by what Paul says to the men of the church that they ought to wash their wives in the water by the word just as Christ is washing us in the water by the word. Which means what? Our minds are renewed not by some kind of mystical thing that happens but as we are in submission to the word of God our minds are renewed our minds are trans we are transformed by the renewing of our mind as we are washed in the water of the word we're going to get more to that later but this is the salvation life that Paul's referring to is this process of sanctification whereby Grace through faith in Christ daily, the Spirit is conforming us to the image of the Son that is happening through a process as our mind is renewed and we are transformed by the Word of God. And so this is the work that he's talking about, that there should come a time, and he's referring to a time that has come for them already but will continue to come where they are brought face to face with their sin by the Word of God so that they may submit to the Word of God and by submitting to the Word of God they can be transformed, their minds renewed and they are changed and the power that sin has over them weakens every time that they walk through that process. And ultimately, we look forward to an even greater salvation, don't we? The glorification that will come as we await our Savior and when He appears and like Him, we will be transformed and the very presence of sin will be completely removed from our life. This is the full work of salvation. When we take, talk about salvation in its fullest sense, we mean all three of those things. That we have been justified, that we are being sanctified, and ultimately we look forward to a hope of glory where we will be glorified. And not only the penalty of sin, not only the power of sin, but the very presence of sin will be completely removed from our life. Praise God. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. I look forward to that day. Can you imagine? No more hiding. No more remnants of of pride and deceit and conceit in our hearts. All of it being completely removed. As we are able finally, fully to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Where we are able to finally, fully love our neighbors as we ought. What a day that will be, amen? So godly grief, Paul says, produces repentance, which leads to salvation. In other words, life, sanctification. Whereas, what does he say? Worldly grief leads to what? To death. Why? Because worldly grief is really, we, what we could say really this is referring to in the most simple kind of uh, Elementary term is, is just kind of being sorry that you got caught. Really, that's, that's what this is. You know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of sorry I got caught. Because now that I got caught, um, this has made my life difficult, which I don't like. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that things turned out this way. I'm really sorry that this is kind of how things went. Why? Well, because now I have to deal with it and I don't like that and I'm sorry I got caught. Now we may not articulate it in those terms, but essentially that's all that worldly grief is because it doesn't actually produce in us repentance. And we're going to talk today about what true repentance is. I want to give you just a little bit of context here because we only jumped into a very small part of chapter 7. One thing that you need to know is that Paul actually wrote three letters to the Corinthian church. Uh, He refers to another letter that he wrote in 2 Corinthians after the letter to to them the first time. So we have what we call Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians and Corinthians 2 or 2 Corinthians. But there's actually a a missing letter, a third letter. Scholars argue about where this letter is. Uh, Some say that it's missing all together completely. Some say that chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians are that letter preserved or maybe even uh, kind of rehashed in a different way. It really doesn't matter uh, because we have the canon of Scripture and we have what we need for life and godliness, but it, it matters to understand what Paul's referring to here because he says in what we read, I, uh, I'm not sorry. Or really, he says, sorry, not sorry. Right? He says, I understand that my, my letter, and the letter he's referring to is this second letter, uh, produced something in you. He says it grieved you, and he kind of says, you know, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Why is he sorry? He's sorry in the sense that he loves them, And it's not his intent to grieve them. But at the same time, he's not sorry. Why? Because he sees now that that grief led them to repentance. And so what does he say? He says, so you suffered no loss through us. In reality, they didn't just suffer no loss through Paul. They actually gained everything as he was bold enough to, as we learned in Ephesians chapter 4, speak the truth of the word of God in love to these brothers, to even rebuke them in love by the word of God. And they received that rebuke. They received that chastisement. And though it grieved them that they were sorry that Paul had to do that, they were sorry that he felt led to do that, it actually led to repentance, which means what? Life, sanctification, growth the very goal of Ephesians chapter 4, which is that we would all together be built up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ into maturity. Really, that's what the process of sanctification is about. It's about maturity. And so here we see that the Corinthian church was being matured. I want you also to know that Not only were three letters sent, but Paul actually visited the Corinthian church three times. What does this show? It shows the heart. It shows the heart with which this rebuke came. That even after this rebuke, though though he even admits that he thought better of it for a time, that his love for these brothers compelled him to return to them, to visit them and to admonish them not only with words by pen and paper, but face to face, with brotherly love, with affection, and with greeting. And I want you to see what also he's basing this on. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. And we're going to kind of work backwards a little bit here. Look at 7 verse 1. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This this goes with what he's talking about because he's talking about in his letter that he sent them, obviously what he was calling them to was holiness. He wasn't just nitpicking. He wasn't just picking on them. But there was sin in the house, so to speak. And so Paul in love, reaches out, rebukes and chastises them, not just to pick on them, but because there is sin. Now this shows us something. If anyone was a preacher of grace, it was Paul. Paul is the grace guy. This is what he staked his life on in Galatians. And yet here he is chastising these guys for their sin. What what about grace? Well, church, we need to understand that that grace is not ignoring sin. Grace is not counting sin as something that, that can just be looked over. That's not grace. In fact, if that's what grace leads you to do, you haven't understood grace. Because in reality, you haven't understood the holiness of God. because if you understood the holiness of God you would understand that grace uh, excuse me that sin cannot be ignored and that grace does not lead to a passive and ignoring of the sin that is in our life a true understanding of god's grace actually leads us to be able to call sin what it is. It it actually leads us to be able to name our sins without fear. No matter how great they may seem to be in our eyes no matter how deplorable they may be able to be seen, even in the eyes of the world, such as was it was for the Corinthians, even in the first letter, remember that Paul rebukes them. He says, guys, even the world looks at what you guys are doing and calls it deplorable. No matter how great or deplorable your sin might be, a true understanding of God's grace allows you to be able to name that sin Because you understand that the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than that sin. That Jesus paid for that sin. And so you are able without fear to confess that sin before God because you are not afraid that He might not forgive that one. Or that somehow admitting that thing is somehow beyond the reach of God, need we be reminded that the hand of the Lord is not short unto salvation. And so he's he's calling them to holiness. I want you to see that. But listen to how he bases this plea for holiness. What does he say in verse 1, 7 verse 1? Since we have these promises, beloved, then, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he's making a plea to them to cleanse themselves. He's making a plea to them to turn away from defilement. He's making a plea to them to run towards holiness. But he bases that plea on what? These promises. Well, what? What promises? Well, I said we're going to work backwards. Look at chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Again, he's, he's talking about the nature of not being joined with sin. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's drawing contrast. He's, he's trying to help them see that that. If they belong to Christ, if they belong to the light, if they belong to what is holy, then what is darkness, what is unholy, what is sinful, should not be a part of their lives. He's drawing this contrast, hoping to help them see, and he says, What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? for we are the temple of the living God. And I want you to see, normally we come here just when we're talking about dating, right? This is the dating passage. Don't be unequally yoked. And yes, and amen, that. You should not be unequally yoked. But can you see that this passage is not just about dating and marriage? This is about our lives. That in all of our lives, whether single or married, that we should not be joining ourselves to things that are unholy. Why? Why? So what promises, since we have these promises, what promises? The promise that God Himself says that He will dwell with us, that He will walk with us, that He will be our God and call us His people. And more than that, that He would would welcome us and not just welcome us in the way that a king welcomes subjects, that itself would be overwhelming but he would be a father and we would be his sons and daughters. These are great promises. And Paul is saying, since we have these promises, then let us flee from defilement. More than that, if you work all the way back to chapter 5, we have these promises beginning in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Which means what? As we begin to confess these things, as we begin to turn away from the way that our lives once were, that as we look to one another as brothers and sisters, we don't look at one another as what we used to be. We look at one another as who we are now in Christ. That's what it means, not to regard one another according to the flesh any longer. Why? Verse 17 Because, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Look at verse 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What is the appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21 For our sake he made him. Who's him? Jesus, he made Jesus to be, to become sin who knew no sin. He, he didn't know sin, he had never sinned, but God made him to be sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, then he says, Working together with him then, Paul's referring to himself and to those who are with him, We appeal to you, we appeal to you, Corinthians, not to what? Receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Can I ask you, what would have been the evidence of the Corinthians receiving the grace of God in vain? it would have been to receive that letter, that rebuke from Paul, where in love he rebukes them and pleads with them, he chastises them by the word of God because of their sin. To have received the grace of God in vain would have been to receive that word to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to it and to continue to walk in the paths of defilement. What would that have meant? That would have meant that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 5, we would have to go back and change that passage. We would have had to have gone back and changed that passage to say, For I remind you, brothers, what I preached to you, what I thought you received even then he says unless you received it in vain what would have been receiving the grace of God in vain would be to hear the gospel of their salvation to receive the chastisement of sanctification, and to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to it and could continue in the depravity that they were in. It would be akin to one of the Israelites having been bit by the serpent to hear the word of God come to them to say, look to the bronze serpent that has been lifted up. And they continued to not look at the serpent. And then someone came to them a second time and said, Stop continuing in your sin. Turn, repent, and look at the serpent so that you may be healed. And continue to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to that message. Which would have meant what? That they received that message in vain. If you are the one giving the message to that person and they continue not to turn, you have to say to yourself one thing—the very thing that Paul is wrestling with here with the Corinthians before he received word from Titus that they repented. Did I waste my time? Was it a complete waste? Did I preach the gospel and the grace of God to these people in vain? Would my time have been better spent over here? Now that's the natural fleshly wrestle that we have, right? But Paul is appealing to them to think about it. Even in those terms, did they receive the grace of God in vain? Praise God they didn't. They received the rebuke. Though it grieved them, it grieved them into repentance. Look again at our text. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. That's his sorry, not sorry. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. What happened? Paul draws a contrast here as we continue between godly gr- grief and worldly grief. Godly grief reading le- godly grief, leading to repentance, worldly grief leading to death. And here we see him proclaiming that they have been led to life. So they didn't receive Paul's letter and say, "Well, Doug, he's on our case again. Just you know, like this guy, he just doesn't stop." Okay, Paul, we're sorry. Get to send Titus all the way here to rebuke us, and no, wasn't greeted with apathy it wasn't greeted with a oh well it's just you know we yeah we we did it but you know it it's over it's done just forget about it now what does it say for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves so Paul is saying that we can can look at this description of what happened with the Corinthians and we can begin to draw some implications from it that when we experience godly grief, that that doesn't lead us into apathy. It doesn't lead us into saying, oh, forget about it. It doesn't lead us into passiveness, but godly grief actually enlivens us. Remember, I'm, I'm drawing a, a, a connection here between salvation and life because he says that worldly grief, grief leads to death. It leads to an enlivenment of the believer. Godly grief enlivens, it quickens, it draws us up and out of our sin. And it says, no, I'm not going to live in that way any longer. Why? Because Paul chastised me. No. Because my pastor got on my case. No. Because it's causing problems in my life. No. Because God, my God, who said, I will be his son, is holy. And this way that I've been living is not holy. Therefore, let me repent. And let me be eager. To show that repentance. When, when, we, when we have to walk through church discipline with somebody, we have to emphasize over and over again that repentance is in a moment. That, that, that when God brings repentance, it's, it's now, right? That's the vertical. That's the first table of the law. That gets fixed right now. Today is the day of salvation. But it's that second table of the law, that horizontal between each other that we, we can't see the heart. And so often we need to walk through uh, times where, where we are showing forth the fruit of the repentance that God has given to us. That's where this eagerness is coming from. It's not just a celebration of this one thing that happened, though though I believe that in that celebration is part of what fuels this eagerness to continue. But who was this eagerness for? It says at the end of verse 12, in order that your earnestness for us, Paul referring to him and those who are with him, might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Their eagerness... To clear themselves was not for God. It was for their brothers in Christ. So that they could see and they could affirm and say, Yes, we can see that God has brought repentance and faith into your life. See what earnestness this godly grief is producing. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What is that indignation? It's, a, it's an abhorrence. It's a hatred of sin. Of not wanting that sin to remain in your life. What fear? What is this fear? Is it being afraid of the God who is your Father? No, it's reverence. It's reverence. It's an understanding that He who is holy, who has called me, has called me to be holy as He is holy. And so I walk in reverence of this holy God. Where before, was there fear of God there? No, there was no fear of God. I was not walking in reverence as I continued in that sin. What longing that there should be a pining in our souls For righteousness. There should be a pining in our souls for holiness. There should be a pining in our souls to walk in a way that is upright and righteous. What zeal? What zeal? What is that? It's passion. He's zealous. It's zeal, it's passion. That this eagerness, this longing, this pining would be fueled by a passion. A passion for what? A zeal for the holiness of God. A Christ-like zeal. Jesus was zealous for the holiness of his Father. And then it says what punishment. So you know we want to be obedient to the word of God so today we're going to be handing out uh, little personal whips so that you can take them home. And Is that what this is talking about? No, and we're not doing that. No, this isn't this isn't some kind of Sadistic, masochistic, self-flagellation, punishment here. What does this mean? It means discipline. Elsewhere, Paul talks about disciplining the body, beating the body into submission. It doesn't mean punishing yourself in that regard. It means that we would have spirit-filled discipline. Spirit-filled discipline in our lives. This is what godly grief produces in us. Which means what? That if there is no earnestness, if there is no eagerness, if there is no zeal or longing, if there is no discipline and indignation for sin, then no matter what someone says with their mouth about being sorry, that really all that they are exhibiting is worldly grief and not godly grief. Now this is the point where many of you are probably thinking to yourself, gosh, I hope blank is listening this morning. And this is also the point when I say, stop it. This isn't about them, it's about you. This sermon this morning is for you, not for them. That's kind of like the sign up there on, uh, in Old Town Helotus that says, free beer tomorrow, okay? It's always tomorrow. So for every single one of you this morning, this is for you, not them. And if them is here, it's for you, not them. Do you see what I'm saying? This is for you this morning. It's for me. Look at Titus chapter 3, just to the right here, a little bit in your Bibles. After 2 Timothy, before Philemon. Titus chapter 3, 1 through 7. Now Titus is the one who carried this letter to the Corinthians. Titus is the one who got to experience the repentance that they had and then journeyed to meet Paul and to inform him that they had repented, which brought about 2 Corinthians. Okay, listen to what Paul says to Titus here. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here we see that Paul is saying to Titus that this saving came not because they decided, well, today I want to be saved. But it came because of a work that God did in washing them in regeneration and renewing them by the Holy Spirit. That's how this works. That's how repentance comes. Repentance is a gift of God by the Holy Spirit, it is given. Through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now I look at this and I say, Lord, wash me, renew me. That's that longing, that's that pining that we should be asking the Lord to wash us and renew us to save us not just once upon a time but to save us right now today but look back one chapter Titus 2 working backward again I'm sorry verse 11 talks about the grace of God bringing salvation it says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people and what does it do this grace of God what does it accomplish it says bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What does it say the grace of God produces? Apathy and forgetfulness about sin? No, what does it say? It says the grace of God, what? Brings salvation. It brings life. What else does it do? The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. It causes us to live. It trains us to live self-controlled lives. It trains us to live upright. It trains us to live godly lives. That's what the grace of God is meant to do. The grace of God doesn't come along and say, now you never have to worry about sin. The grace of God comes along and says, confess your sin before God, for He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. As those who have been made new, who are new creations, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, have been made new by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When we are made known about our sin, there is only one right response. And that is a godly grief which leads to repentance. Now we've talked about repentance a lot this morning. But we've never defined it. So what is repentance? Oftentimes when you think about it or you try to define it, repentance is termed as a turning away and walking in the other direction. But that's not really how the Bible terms repentance. It talks about a turning away and a walking in the other direction. But the way the Bible frames it is that is the product of repentance. That is the fruit of repentance. That is what comes from repentance. Yes, there should be a turning away and a heading in a path of righteousness after you've been walking in a path of ungodliness. But repentance itself is not the turning and the walking. Why? Because that's something that you're going to do. And repentance is something that God gives. What is repentance? Well, if you Google it, it says feel or express regret about wrong or sin. That's not biblical repentance. In fact, that's pretty much the definition of worldly grief. But biblical repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means this, to change the mind. To change the mind. And not just change, though in classical Greek literature, that's really all it means, just change the mind. But in the Bible, the way that it's used is to change the mind in such a way that you agree with God about your sin. It is to agree with God about your sin. That's repentance. That's metanoia. That's this thing that happens where God, by gift of grace, through faith, in Christ, by the Spirit, gifts you this change of mind that says, I was heading in this direction and something has happened. Well, for the Corinthians, what happened? They got a letter from Paul that was the very word of God to them that said, repent, And what happened? They received the word of God from Paul and the Spirit gave faith and they changed their minds and agreed with God about their sin. God changed their minds and they agreed with Him about their sin. Which led to salvation, sanctification, life, which was what? Which was that turning and walking in a new direction, in a godly direction. But the turning and the walking was not the repentance. It was the fruit, the byproduct of the repentance that God had brought as He changed their mind about their sin. This church really is the difference between conscience and the Holy Spirit. For every man has a conscience. And even a sinful man might be convinced that he's done something wrong. And just because he changes his mind about the thing that he has done, that he is now deemed wrong, that does not mean that salvation has come to his house. But it is when the Holy Spirit changes the mind of the person to agree with God about their sin, that is when salvation comes. And think about it. Is that not how, in fact, you were saved in the beginning? Did not you come to a point where suddenly you recognized your own sin and you looked to Christ to be the one who could forgive you of that sin? You agreed with God that you were indeed not only sinful but a sinner. And you experienced the truth of what Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, This saying is trustworthy and of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And every single one of us, when we come to faith, we come to that recognition that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and Jesus died to save me. That same thing is what happens each time we are brought face to face with our sin as believers, where we see our sin, we recognize it, we admit it, And we express our need for a Savior all over again. Not to save us all over again in the sense of like, now you're not saved and you need to be saved again. No! Past, present, future, done. But so that I may grow in grace so that I may grow in maturity, so that I may grow in sanctification in this work that God is doing by saving me daily, by grace, through faith, in Christ, by the Spirit conforming me to the image of the man of heaven, as it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Is that not what we want? I hope that we want it. Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 15 on repentance unto life and salvation, paragraph 3, it says this. It says, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. And one of the scripture proofs there, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. This is what Paul's talking about here. And so what did it say that that we should confess of known sins particularly. What is this saying? It's saying that we don't need to obsess over the things that maybe we don't even know that we did or didn't do. But that when God in His grace reveals our sin to us, that that sin particularly we should repent of. In church, let me tell you, it is the grace of God to uncover our sin. In fact, it should be an expectation for us that God will in love and grace continually uncover our sin. Why? To humiliate us? To make our lives miserable? No. So that that sin's power might be weakened and lessened over us as we are conformed to the image of His Son and that sin is dealt with. So how does God uncover our sin? I want to give you three primary ways that God uncovers our sin. They're all very similar. The first way I want to tell you that God uncovers our sin is through the Word of God preached week after week on the Lord's Day. As He gathers us together to sit under the preaching of His Word. And as His Word is preached, the Holy Spirit pricks our heart and shows us where we are not walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And that moment when that happens is not a moment to shrink away from. It's not a moment to run away from. It's not a thing that should cause you to want to leave this place and never come back. But that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that pricking of your heart, as the Word of God is preached, is something that you should long for. It's something that you should wait for and anticipate. And when it comes... That you should continually ask God to make you ready, willing, and able to repent of it immediately. Doesn't mean it will always be that easy. But that should be the heart with which we sit under the teaching of the Word of God. And so one of the primary ways that God uncovers our sin is just through the preaching of His Word. The second Way that I would say is also a primary way. Remember, this is three primary ways that God uncovers our sin is through the Word of God read. As you read the Word of God as you should, as you are able, as much as you are able, and you read the Word of God, something's going to happen. Because the Word of God comes to us in two primary words, law and gospel. And as you read law and gospel, something's going to happen. You're going to begin to get a reflection of the heart and the character of the holiness of God. And then there are moments where the mirror of the Word of God is going to turn and what once was reflecting to you the holiness of the character of God is going to reflect to you your own true nature. And in seeing your own true nature reflected in the Word of God, then, believer, beloved, church, Mike, repent. Repent. Agree with God about your sin. Submit to that work of the Holy Spirit who is seeking to wash you through the water of the Word and submit to that work and agree with God about your sin. Submit. What did it say? It said those who humble themselves. Humble yourself before the Word of God. And the third primary way I would say that God is faithful to uncover our sin is through the Word of God, spoken in love, even in rebuke by brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the similarity of all these three things is that they all come to us through the Word. Why? Because that is how we are being renewed is through the Word. And God is faithful to uncover our sin through the Word preached, the Word read, and the Word spoken in love, even in rebuke. In love, Paul rebuked the Corinthians, and what was the result? Holy Spirit-led repentance. Holy Spirit-led earnestness. Holy Spirit-led eagerness to clear themselves. Holy Spirit-led indignation. That's what the the 1689 was talking about, abhor and detest. Holy Spirit-led fear, reverence of God and His holiness. Holy Spirit-led longing. Holy Spirit-led passion and zeal. Holy Spirit-led discipline. And what, as Paul says, the result is you have proved yourself innocent In the matter, you've you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Is that not strange language to you, to write to guilty people? They were guilty. They had sinned. He rebuked them. They repented, which means they agreed with God about their sin. They said that they had done it. And now he says, you've proved yourself innocent. But they were guilty. What is Paul saying? The guilt Paul is referring to is not the guilt about their particular sins but in the way they were beforehand by their action showing themselves to not belong to Christ. And that's where Paul's indignation's coming from. He's not just writing them to say, guys, you screwed up. You really blew it. You're really bad people. That's not where Paul's indignation was coming from. He was riding with indignation because he's saying the path of your life right now is reflecting an image that says you don't belong to Christ. That's the seriousness of sin in our lives. Because in those times where we persist in our sin... We are bearing false witness of God. Why? Because we were made to be image bearers. And we're to be holy as He is holy. Why? Because we are meant to rightly reflect the image of God. And when we sin, we are reflecting a distorted and false image of God. We are bearing false witness. Of God. So Paul says you've proved yourself innocent. Why? Not, not because they were innocent of the things they did. They didn't give a defense and say, no, Paul, no, Paul, you don't understand. Here's how what we were actually doing. This is where we really were, were, were about. This is where our, our heart was. No, it wasn't that. They didn't, they didn't acquit themselves. What did they prove themselves innocent of? Their repentance proved that they belonged to Christ. And that false image was corrected so that they were no longer bearing false witness to the God that they claimed. By their godly grief, which produced repentance, they had proven innocent of that charge that they were reflecting that they don't belong to Christ and that was Paul's chiefest concern. Church repentance this ongoing repentance that we are called to in the word of God proves to be the hallmark of the Christian life. Do you know what a hallmark is? It's not just a card shop, right? You know what a hallmark is? In the olden days when The silversmith or the goldsmith would produce their wares in the fire and as it came out, they would take their mark and they would stamp it on that piece. It was their hallmark that says that artist shaped that piece. This ongoing rhythm of confession, repentance, and reconciliation with God and with each other is meant to be the hallmark of the Christian life. Do you know what that means? It means that it should free us a little bit to, to not hide so much. Because how can we show our hallmark unless we're willing to confess that we have sinned? should free us to understand that It's okay to not be okay because God's in the business of lovingly uncovering our sin and showing that we're not okay so that He can heal us and save us and reconcile us to Himself even more. This ongoing repentance proves to be the hallmark of the Christian life and our lives ought to be marked by it. Church, agree with God about your sin and then in repentance, in godly grief, Turn away from it completely. For if you don't, you only prove yourself not to belong to Christ. Which means that the only thing that you have to look forward to is the wages of your sin. Which is what worldly grief leads to and that's death. But don't forget the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you stand with me this morning? In closing, I want to just take us to Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1. Verses 16 through 18. It says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then he says this, Come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. Let us pray. Father, even in the reading of the prophet, we see this invitation that you have given to us. Come, let us reason together. God, I pray that right now by your spirit, you would reason with us through your word that has been preached today. And God, we would come to a place of eagerness, of earnestness, where we would pray the prayer of David even this morning. And each one of us individually would say, God, search me and know me and see if there is any evil way within me and god lead me in paths of righteousness in other words god come come and wreck our lives in grace and love show us our sins so that we might repent we might agree with you about our sin in godly grief god may we turn away and in earnestness and eagerness with longing with zeal with reverence and fear, with discipline, may we seek to clear ourselves so that we might rightly reflect the image of the one who has loved us so dearly, so completely, to save us so completely. God, we love you so much. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.